This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. I'm doing, uh, I've been asked to speak about practicing adversity. Actually, it's funny because I was in Sheffield last week for Sangha Night and they did the, well, I did a day retreat on the Four Right Efforts and they've been doing Virya as well. So I did a talk on Virya last week. So we're, we're in tune in Cardiff. Um, and it's very good to speak on this today as well because it's uh, spring equinox uh, today, tonight, this evening. So, um, it's the start of new life and new beginnings in the midst of darkness and snow. At least we hope it is. We hope this spring is finally here. So um, when thinking about aver- practicing in adversity, the first thing to ask is, well, what do you do when things get tough? And that's what do you really do when things get tough? Because obviously we sometimes have an idea about what I should do when things get tough. Because what I should do is sort of, eat green vegetables and go to a yoga class and go walking in the hills but what do you actually do when things get tough Um, and I suppose what happens is the temptation is to look for comfort is to look for uh, a little bit of an easier situation so we don't really have that green vegetable smoothie every morning like we think we should when things are tough what we really do is we go for the chocolate or uh, look for comfort, watch a load of TV, something like that, dive under the duvet. And there's nothing wrong with that, there's nothing wrong with doing those things, but what we can end up doing is actually just avoiding the difficult situations. Um, and from the Buddhist perspective, if we avoid looking at those difficult uh, situations and really examining them, then we've missed an opportunity. Because from the Buddhist point of view, in the heart of painful and unsatisfactory and difficult situations is the jewel of wisdom. It's there if we're willing to look right into the heart of it. Because if we can really look into the heart of our difficult situations and into the heart of adversity, this teaches us something about the way things are. It teaches us something about ourselves. It teaches us something about other people. And we can really see this in the stories of the Buddha and his disciples, because it was often when he brought their attention back to their difficult experience that they um, gained release, that they gained release from suffering altogether. So some of you might have heard the story of Kisagotami. I'm hoping that it's familiar to some of you at least. Actually, I first heard this story... um, when I was, um, I used to be a Catholic and I was at church and I must have been quite young, maybe about seven. And the priest told this as a story of Jesus. Never come across it, I have to say, in the Bible or anything, but you never know. I might have just missed it. Um, but actually, it's definitely a Buddhist story and it, it's about a, a disciple of the Buddhas called Kisagotami. So Kisagotami um, had lost her son, her, ba- her baby son had died, which was a very, very big deal in those days in India, not just because of the loss of a child, but also the loss of status that went with it. And um, she'd also lost her husband. 
and without um, a male heir and uh, a male child, um, she was going to be treated probably worse than a slave by her husband's family. So she was in a very, very difficult situation. And um, she was wandering mad and lost around the um, countryside um, where, in the area where the Buddha was. And it was one of those situations one gets the impression where you just avoid someone, you know. Um, there was this mad woman who was wandering around with the body of her, her baby who died, saying, can anyone help me? Has anyone got any medicine? And people would generally just step back and avoid her because they could see that the child had died and they just didn't know what to do. But eventually someone was very kind and said, why don't you go and see the Buddha? He might be able to help you. So she went to the Buddha and she said, um, she said to him, uh, have you got any medicine? Can you, bring my, can you help my child? He's very, very sick. And of course the Buddha could see that the child was dead. But he said to her, well, actually, I can. I can help your child. Um, you've just got to bring me a mustard seed. And in, the how, in any Indian household, you'll get a mustard seed. That's no problem. But he said to her, but you must get a mustard seed from a house where no one has died. So she said, OK, I'll go and get a mustard seed from a house where no one has died. So she knocked on people's door and she said, can I have a mustard seed? She said, yeah, of course, yeah, as many as you like. Um, and they said, oh, but she said, oh, but um, has anyone died in this house? And they said, oh, I'm, I'm really sorry, someone has died in this house. You know, my my father, my grandfather, my mother, you know, uh, my sister, many people have died in this house. So she went from house to house to house to get this mustard seed. But every, in every house, someone had died. And uh, eventually she came back to the Buddha and she saw what the Buddha was trying to tell her. What he was trying to tell her was that death is universal. And um, her suffering was also the suffering of other, of other people. And there's a very moving incident where she laid her bo the body of her child at the Buddha's feet and she said, I laid my burden down. And then she herself became uh, enlightened and uh, a very, very well-known follower uh, of the Buddha. So it's an interesting story because what the Buddha did there is um, he helped her turn towards her suffering but see the reality of it, to see into the heart of her own suffering was what connected her actually to other human beings. He helped her to see something about the way things are, that all things change, that life involves loss and pain. And in helping her turn towards her own suffering, he helped to show her that he, she could free herself from suffering by stopping uh, trying to control life, um, by uh, letting go of clinging to things that will inevitably change. So we get a lot of stories like that in the early Buddhist tradition of the Buddha and his disciples. Um, many, many, many. I could tell you many more. And these stories um, were brought together in a way in, in something called the mind training tradition of, of Tibetan Buddhism called Lojong uh, in Tibetan. Uh, there's the seven points and the eight verses. And these are the ways in which we can use our suffering to liberate ourselves. So I don't have time to go into the seven points or the eight verses, but um, it is something I do recommend you do look into yourself. 
But what I thought I'd do this evening is just summarise the most useful points. So um, what we have in, in uh, the mind training tradition are slogans. You have slogans and you memorise them off by heart. Well, you can memorise the eight verses very easily. The slogans, what I've got, got is I've got them on little cards. And it's a bit like tarot, only nothing like tarot. Anyway, you pick them out and you just have a look at this slogan. And they're very pointed uh, about reflecting on your experience. And basically what they're saying is you can use adversity, you can use difficult times as your teacher, as your best friend. Um, and what that means is uh, seeing adversity as something that can teach you something, that gives you an opportunity to transform. It doesn't mean that you have to invite disaster because uh, suffering will just come to us. You know, you don't have to purposely go out of your way to invite suffering as some sort of religious practice. Uh, it just means that when suffering comes, you know how to reflect on it. So I've got three slogans uh, of my own invention. Well, sort of, the last one isn't. Um, and the first one is, don't take pleasant or painful feelings too seriously. So Buddhism, and you might have come across this, uh, you know, I don't know how much Dharma you've studied, but it's always good to have a recap. Buddhism makes the distinction between unpleasant and pleasant feeling. So it means something quite specific when it talks about feeling. It's not uh, emotion. It's more like um, what we call hedonic tone. Um, the Pali for it is Vedana. So Vedana means um, something just feels immediately pleasant or immediately painful or, or unpleasant. So, um, for example, um, uh, you know, if we open the fridge and get out some off rice, as I did this week, um, we open the box and we it smells a particular smell and that is unpleasant. We just go... If we come into the kitchen and we smell freshly baked bread, it smells pleasant and we think, hmm. So uh, it's very, very immediate um, feelings of pleasant and unpleasant. That's what we mean by Vedana, pleasant feeling. And um, they just happen, that the feelings that arise on the basis of sensory stimulus just arise on the re as a result of other factors, of, of just what's happening in our environment around us. Or as Vishwapani mentioned in, in the meditation, the kind of we can have also have that sort of tone to our thoughts. You know, we think something and we either have an immediate response of pleasant or unpleasant. Um, but we can't control those feelings directly. They just happen to us as we move through our experience of life. They're part of our instinctual consciousness. And even from the point of view of evolution, they're very helpful because they keep us safe from immediate harm. You know, because the fact that you smell off rice and it's like, ooh, then that means you won't eat it, basically. And the fact that you smell freshly baked bread and you think, hmm, means um, possibly not if you're a celiac, but, you know, for the rest of us, uh, <laughs> if you eat fresh, freshly baked bread, it's, it's good for you, it's nourishing, you know. It's nice. So, yeah, from an ordinary point of view, it's very, very helpful to have that. Animals also have uh, that kind of Vedana, hedonic tone to experience. Um, but it's not enough to live a, human, a truly human life. A truly human life is more about how we respond to pleasure and pain 
and making our response consciousness. Uh, making our response conscious. Because the problem about um, feeling tone and Vedana is that um, is that you can uh, is you can li- may take it too seriously, and then you live a life that's a bit like an animal in a sense. What uh, Arloka calls doggy consciousness, where you just run after pleasant feeling, and you just um, run away from unpleasant feeling. And you end up by being ruled by wanting more and more pleasant feeling and less and less unpleasant feeling. More and more pleasant experiences and less and less unpleasant experiences. So this we can, uh, we can get a sense of in regards to other people. Um, so for example, if someone does something we don't like, uh, we develop an aversion to them, you know, say they say something a bit sharp to us. We can develop a kind of habitual aversion to them and then we can even get into hatred towards them. Um, uh, whereas, um, yeah, and also, you know, you can get into a state where if you're blamed or you lose something or you get into a situation where you feel like a nobody and no one's paying any attention to you, you can feel this unpleasant feeling, and then you can just avoid those situations. Um, You start avoiding people you don't like, uh, avoiding situations where you might, you know, step out a bit and be blamed, or fail, or not be the best or something. And that means that we start shrinking our lives into a corner that's just about avoiding unpleasant feeling. And one of the things that Sangharachita says is he says um, to feel our feelings fully and yet make our response conscious is the battleground of the spiritual life. Uh, and what this means is the battleground of the spiritual life is, yes, OK, some experiences are pleasant and some experiences are unpleasant. But this is not what's going to rule my life. I still have a choice about what I do. Because a meaningful life is about how we act and how we respond to situations. It's karmic. Karma just means action. Uh, It's karmic. It's not hedonic. Um, So, for example, and this is what we, uh, the whole of the Metta Bhavna is structured around this. Um, So what we find is, so say someone blames you for something or someone's a bit sharp to you. It's unpleasant. It's unpleasant to be blamed. It's unpleasant to hear something sharp. And yet, uh, as Buddhists, we do the metta bhavna. We put that person in our fourth stage. We don't tell them we're putting them in the fourth stage. We just do that secretly. Um, And through doing that practice, we start to be able to move towards that person, you know, towards the person who's been a bit unpleasant to us. And um, that's a skillful action. And in a way, that action, that moving towards someone who we have a sort of unpleasant feeling towards, in a way, it shakes samsara. Something different happens. Um, And uh, we move the situation. On the same degree, you might be attracted to someone for whom it's, it's inappropriate to follow that out for whatever reason. Um... And uh, so you can feel that attraction towards someone, but you decide that actually it's not appropriate to follow that through and you step back. Uh, And again, that's a skillful action. It's a karmic action um, that undermines the root of samsara, which is greed, hatred and delusion. 
So mind, the basis of mind training is basically that however people make us feel, whether they've blamed us or let us down or been unkind, we practice ethics towards them. We move towards them in some way. We don't just settle into uh, avoiding them or hating them. But it's also uh, important because this particular teaching is also very important because we don't have to feel guilty about those initial feelings. If someone blames you or is sharp or unkind to you, you will feel unpleasant feelings. Um, but you don't have to let that rule your life. Life isn't just about having a good feeling all the time. In a way, that's the basis of advertising. But advertising just says, you know, if you have this particular car, you'll just have pleasant experience all the time. Your life will just become more and more pleasant. And the whole of advertising is just about trying to feed the desire for pleasant experience, the new phone, the new computer, the new clothes, and um, uh, help us avoid anything that's unpleasant. So um, the way the mind training uh, slogans put it is they say, whatever of the two occurs, whether it's pleasure or pain, be patient. So if it's pleasant, great. If you have a pleasant experience, enjoy your pleasant experience and share it with others. Um, but if you have unpleasant experience, if you have times that are very painful or miserable, um, they will pass. Be patient. So that's one of the slogans. Whatever is the two occurs, be patient. Um, the other one is, uh, and this is the sort of more advanced practice, is to see all experience, whether it's pain or pleasure, as dreams or a magic show. And the mind training advises us to be a child of illusion. So this is quite a practice. You can sometimes do it. You can imagine that every experience you have is like a magical show or an illusion. And within that, whatever's going on, whether it's painful or pleasant, you can create. Or in Sangharacha's words, you can love where there is no reason to love. And find hope where there is no reason for hope. And in this way build heaven in hell's despair. So that's the first thing is don't get to, don't take pleasure uh, or pain or unpleasant and pleasant experiences too seriously. Um, even see them as illusory. Even see them as the play of the re reality. What's important is how you respond to those feelings. And the second, uh, the second um, slogan of my own invention is to find the deeper roots of faith. Because if life isn't just about pleasant feeling, it is about ethical behaviour. And yet we don't always behave ethically and people don't always behave ethically towards us. So if we look into the nature of, of adversity, of painful and difficult situations... What do we find? Well, what we find is we find that we're all deluded beings. And there's this really lovely um, part of the Parinibbana Sutta, which is the last years of the Buddha's life. And the Buddha turns to his disciples and he says, you know, apropos of nothing, really. He just turns to them and he says, through not understanding Reality, have we run on and wandered round this long, long journey, both you and I? And I have to say that really speaks to me. He's an old man. He, he knows he's going to die soon. 
Uh, he's at the end of his life, and he's enlightened. He's been enlightened for a long time, you know, 50 years or so. Uh, he's been teaching the um, Buddha Dhamma. And yet he can turn to his disciples and he says, through not understanding, through not penetrating into wisdom, have we wandered round and run on this long, long journey, both you and I. And somehow, sometimes we can get a sense of that, that uh, through the midst of this adversity, this tender experience, that all beings suffer. Maybe this is some of what Kisagotami saw. And yet, at the same time, there's also the potential for Bodhi, the potential for awakening and understanding of reality. And this is what the Buddha saw um, when he saw all beings um, like lotuses. So part of his enlightenment was that he saw all beings like lotuses emerging from the mud of existence, some still caught in the mud, some halfway up into the water, and some standing free from the water and opening their blossom. And he saw that all beings were like this, reaching up to the light from the mud of existence. And somehow, um, through adversity, we can get a a sense of both those things. That actually we're all in this samsara together, and yet we all have the potential for Bodhi. And that's the basis of faith, of faith in the possibility of enlightenment, uh, Faith doesn't come because everything is going well and we're really enjoying ourselves and we're enjoying our spiritual practice and meditation is really easy or something like that. Faith comes when in the midst of chaos and suffering, we see that there's still a momentum towards enlightenment. Um, We see that in ourselves. And you can have this dual experience, which I've often had actually, which is you can be in quite a lot of um, pain and suffering even physical pain, and yet, at the same time, you can be in bliss. Um, You can be in a kind of a sense of deeper faith that, oh, this is the way things are. Beings are deluded, and they suffer, and they have human bodies that they can't control. And yet, there is this marvellous potential that we're all capable of. Um, And when I get a glimpse of that... It's much more profound than any difficult experience that I'm having in the moment. And this great longing arises for what is possible, a longing in myself and a longing for other people. So in the mind training, they say, may I always cherish all beings with a resolve to accomplish for them the highest good that is more precious than any wish fulfilling gem. And when you get in contact with that deep heart aspiration for the well-being and liberation of all beings, then uh, all the other stuff just falls into a different perspective. And it's really not that important in any, in any more. And it, your life becomes more, more than uh, just whether things are going right or wrong for you. They're about this desire for liberation. And that's possible in every moment. So yes, the second slogan is to find the deeper roots of faith, the roots of faith that are deeper than any uh, kind of situation that you can find yourself in. And the third slogan is, uh, when in doubt, do something for somebody else. 
So this is, uh, actually it's not my slogan, it's Dada Rinpoche's slogan. Dada Rinpoche was a, a teacher of Sangharachita. And um, yeah, funnily enough, we've got his ashes in a, in a stupa in our garden. And apparently he said, I don't know, he didn't write it down, but apparently he said to someone, you when in doubt, just do something for someone else. Because, as I said, adversity can have a special quality, and it's the special quality of helping us open out to other people, because we see that suffering is universal, and it becomes impersonal, it's not just about us. And this is really what we saw with the, the story of Kisagotomi, because it wasn't just her suffering, it wasn't just the death of her own child, it was the fragile human life, and human connections, and... Um, human love for each other uh, that's universal to all beings and it was by seeing that um, all people love you know going around from house to house and seeing in each family that they loved people and they died and they had to let them go that she saw that there was something more than her own suffering it wasn't just her own suffering it was the situation for all living beings and I think that what this does is when we can kind of broaden out away from just our own suffering, um, this really challenges a deeply held wrong view of self and the resultant um, self-clinging. So what happens is that usually we divide the world into what belongs to me and myself and other and we can end up in a situation, a kind of divided consciousness, where um, we prioritise ourself and our own experience and what belongs to us. And we can feel ourselves in opposition to, and tension to other people. And this is suffering. So suffering is uh, when we feel ourselves um, inward looking, um, closed off from life around us. Whereas uh, positive states of mind uh, and happy states of mind are when we feel expansive. And it's not that we ignore our own needs or cut ourselves off from ourselves. It's more like we expand beyond our own needs and we're not confined by our own needs. And we see ourselves simply as part of life. And here I am with my own experience, but all, all of you are also here with your own experience. And we're all just part of life. Because sometimes uh, the answer can't be found by more introspection. Sometimes we just have to open out to life. Uh, we have to forgive life and we have to open out to life and particularly the life in others. So I remember once years ago in Sheffield, um, I don't know why I was talking about this. Anyway, I was, I was saying something along the same lines. And uh, and for some strange reason, um, it just came into my head. And I said, oh, you know, you can always do something for someone else, even if it's just making a flapjack. <laughs> and I don't know why flapjacks came. But anyway, it's one of those things you say in a moment. And there was this woman there who was actually, I didn't know, but she was in very hellish states of mind. Um, she was really, really struggling at that time. And uh, she took what I said really literally. And then she came to the class and every week she made a flapjack. <laughs> and um, Which was great for me. I was really pleased. She made lovely flapjacks. Um, but what was really interesting about it, she said afterwards, in a way that got her out of this state of mind. 
there was something about knowing she was going to come to the class and knowing that she was going to make a flapjack and that other people would enjoy that flapjack that got her out of this very, very inward um, uh, sort of, you know, when your mind, it just circles round itself. It's not going anywhere. It's just the thoughts go circling round themselves. And she was in that state, and the only thing that could really get her out of it was, was giving a flapjack to other people. And I definitely had it as well, because when I was working in the evolution shop in Sheffield, uh, when I was much younger, um, and... Um, not quite so integrated as I am now, hopefully. Um, they used to sometimes call me the vortex of darkness because I'd get in such bad moods, like seriously bad moods, that would lead to like slightly, like you were expecting some of the cups to start flying off the walls. And um, I had this instruction, which is whenever I got in a mood like that, I'd have to leave the shop, just leave the shop and walk around the block. And... Um, around Sheffield Town Centre and in that little walk I had to do something for someone else so even if it was holding open a door or um, speaking to the charity fundraisers or whatever it is I just had to do something for someone else this is my little precept Um, and it really worked actually I think partly because I took responsibility for my own mental states and stopped blaming other people but also that little thing of having to do something for someone else broke it broke um, that construction of reality that I had, which is it's me against the world. Uh, Reginald Ray talks about um, reversing the normal logic of the ego. So normally what we do is we retreat into ourselves in opposition to other people. But if we reverse that normal logic of the ego and actually reach out when we're in those states, it has this magical effect. One of the things that Sangrachti says is he says, if you can't meditate, practice ethics. If you can't practice ethics, be generous. You can always practice generosity. So there you go. There's my three slogans. Uh, Don't take your Vedana, um, pleasant or painful feelings, too seriously. Find the deeper roots of faith. And when in doubt, do something for someone else. And if we start to practice these things, then we'll start to live a truly human life, a life that's not confined by that endless search for more and more pleasant uh, feeling and less and less painful feeling, Um, a life that's not confined by self-clinging and a life that's a bit more in touch with reality and living out our momentum. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you.